You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. 40 years of This is Emeritus Rex with Rabbi Ruvain Joshua or Joshua Pupko from Cote St. Luke, Montreal, Canada. Rabbi Pupko. Emeritus Rex. Did I say Emeritus Rex? I think I'm not so. sure. It, it can never be said enough. <laughs> Even though I'm a working rabbi, you keep calling me Emeritus, but I, I don't. I don't take offense. But I, but yeah, but it, but Rex is there too, and Rex means right, king. Right. Rex is the king, and you are definitely the yeah. you right. Yeah, you are. Yeah, nobody is trying to uh, to I'm lord to, of the manor. No one is trying to nip at your heels. You, but yes, you are the you are the God, uh, again. You are the reigning uh, rabbi of my behemoth. Yes. <laughs> A Leviathan, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know there is a be- behemoth, a behemoth. I thought it was a behemoth. I don't know. I don't know. You're right. I, I I deliberately mispronounced it because it was funnier. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, the behemoth or Leviathan. You know, there's there's a big behemoth and Leviathan around. And, and again, we've the last time we spoke, we you 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 gave us a real great perspective uh, on the Gaza war, and. Um, and let's start first there and then move uh, to other things. Okay. Uh, uh, let's start with the easy stuff. I think I and many, many other Jews who um, were very worried about the Biden administration's um, uh, statements and attitudes towards uh, Israel, uh, despite what he said at the, uh, at the Detroit runway, when Rashida Talib accosted him and praising her her parents and praising how she's uh, Rashid, you're a fighter, you're a fighter, and I hope your parents and family. Besides that, like flub, and even having to be forced to talk to her and to make a public announcement, putting that on the side, I, I think we had to applaud Biden for holding the line against the squad and saying. He he didn't equate uh, Israel and 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 in Gaza, right? He did not really publicly do that, and and something we know Obama probably would have. What do you think? Are you are you impressed with Biden's uh, what Biden did? He said everything that was right. He said the right stuff over and over again persistently. He said that Hamas is a terrorist group. Israel, state of Israel, has the right to defend itself. He said it persistently. He said it. Blinken said it. They all said the right things. Some analysts have said that they learned the mistakes from 2014, the last time there was a war in Gaza, and many of these same players, if not all of them, were in the Obama administration, and how little influence they had because of the public uh, uh, rebuke of Israel and, and, and Netanyahu, and that they learned from their mistakes, and, and, and so publicly they won't criticize what Israel does. From everything we've heard in private, Uh, It was only towards the end when he went, and he also went public on this Biden, where he began uh, encouraging a a ceasefire. The question, the challenge of the American, now, I want to tell you my fear, and then I'll I'll talk again about Gaza. My fear is that his pro-Israel pronouncements during Gaza has to do with trying to defend himself against the impending accusations of betraying Israel when he makes an Iran deal. So I think it may be a setup for later. In other words, let me garner credibility on a minor issue. I'm not saying the conflict is minor. I'm saying 
you know, it wouldn't have mattered that much anyway, what he said. Let me garner street mm-hmm. credit with Israel and the pro-Israel crowd in America by defending Israel's uh, self-defensive measures during this Gaza conflict. And so when Iran deal comes up, as it, you know, every day you hear a you know, contradictory report about the progress in Vienna, that if an Iran deal actually comes to be, it'll be harder, he thinks, for his critics to claim he's anti-Israel. So that, that, that could be a problem here. One second. Do you really, again, maybe I've been listening to Ben Shapiro too much and, and other people. Do, do you really think he has the mental acuity and that type of savvy? Or does that come second nature to him? I mean, I, I think there are very smart people around him. Oh, OK. So you think whatever you know, Biden is trusting the people that's whispering in his ears, it's not necessarily. No, I, I don't know. Listen, in any administration, you can always question what the president did on their own and what they did, you know, triggered by advice. I mean, that's, a, you know, that, that, inconsequential, really. It happens. So it doesn't really matter. But I fear that's the plan. Uh huh. I have to tell you, um, you know, I, I, you know, one of the most popular podcasts next to ours uh, is the Daily, which um, Michael Barbaro. Uh, right, he does a very good job. Yes, and also he has a very soothing voice. I like his voice. <laughs> he actually worked on that. His that's not his normal speaking voice. Oh, he really? worked. Yes, yes. There, there was a, a interview in New York Magazine where they realized that this is something that he puts on. But you know, Michael Barbaro uh, of the Daily did a. Um, a special on the relationship between uh, Netanyahu and Biden and how it how deep it was and how they remembered each other uh, from Ted Kennedy's um, uh, election uh, re-election campaign. So I was I was struck. And again, I guess I could have found it out on my own, but that that there does seem despite this hissy fit that he threw. What was it? They opened a, a show in Efrat. I don't know what it was. Uh, no, no, some- that was Biden was arriving on a trip to Israel while he was vice president. And it was on that day that they announced uh, construction Har Homo, uh, if I remember correctly. And, uh, and it was considered to be a, uh, a breach of like, etiquette, right. you know, if not worse, to announce this as he arrived. Right, right. And there was a discussion whether Biden was going to leave. In other words, the Obama, Obama supposedly made a call to Biden and told him, get on a plane and leave right away. Uh, don't accept this slap in the face. Right. And Biden said, look, I'm going to say I'm pissed off, but I'm going to stay here and I'm going to have dinner with him anyway. Right. So here's the thing. No, because it was it was viewed by by Washington as a deliberate slap in the face. It was. Mm-hmm. Whether it was or not, because sometimes things happen in Israel that aren't well thought out, and, and you know it could have been some guy in the in the ministry who who did it on his own. You don't know, right? These things. It's hard to know what's deliberate in Israel because there are these pockets of power that act almost autonomously in, in the government because of the coalition governments, um, and they're not always well coordinated. But um, but people forget. I mean, really forget that people like George W. Bush set a whole new standard of an American administration support for Israel. For, let me give you an example. In 1981, 40 years ago, this Shavuos, uh, Israel bombed the Osirak nuclear reactor. Yes. Right? Reagan condemned Israel publicly. Uh, people forget that George Gerald Ford, uh, in the years that he was president, in between Nixon and, and Carter, and Gerald Ford announced a reassessment of, of, of our relationship with Israel, which is why every Jew, like including myself, the first time I ever voted 
was 1980 uh, was 1988, and I voted for for Jimmy Carter because 70. You're talking about 1980, yeah. Oh no, I'm sorry. Of course, I'm, I'm I'm talking about actually no 1978. I'm, I'm in 1978. In 1978 when no, Jimmy that was Carter, 1976. Oh, you're right. I'm sorry. I'm really getting old. It was right when Ford left the office, and in, 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 in the election was in 1975. Carter took the oath in 76. Yeah, 77, uh, 77, January was, 77. Oh, it was January 77. All right. I'm really messed up. Yes, yes. We, we are. Rewind we, yeah. I, you know, I, I have to leave this in because otherwise people people always <laughs> say, who the hell is Kivalevich? Because I just want to hear Pupko. Now you know what Pupko is without Kivalevich. Pupko is basically a doddering <laughs> old man. Yes. So, you're right. So Emeritus I, I turned, Rex. I Emeritus Rex. Yes, I, turned, I, I turned 18 <laughs> in the summer of 1976. Correct. The first election I voted in was November '76. It was a few months after Entebbe. Are you just, right, right? And you voted for Carter. Everybody, every Jew voted for Carter. No matter how he, he turned out, terrible. You lusted. You is, lusted for Carter in your heart. Right, exactly. Because everybody, every Jew in America was mad at Gerald Ford because he announced a reassessment of relations with Israel. People forget this. People also forget that when the first George Bush was president, you had James Baker testify before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and, and announce his phone number. When the Israelis are interested in peace, they can call me. But George W., starting with George W., the, the, the criteria or the barometer for being pro-Israel changed radically. So, again, we've had bad stuff before. I mean, the, huge, the first big fight, you know, uh, the APAC yeah, was, was the AWACS sale. Under Reagan. I mean, it's, it's it goes back a long time that relations aren't perfect. But George W. was fantastic. Fantastic. You know, I, I, you know, again, it's good. It's great to stroll down memory lane. I would like to say that there was already a shift in the um, with Bill Clinton. I would like to say that even though it was a liberal conservative type of Jew, but Clinton was surrounded by Jews. And Clinton liked Jewish people and as well. And I think that that was that I think that's okay. even, I don't have a problem saying no, no, I'm saying obviously, you know, there's George W. had a born again Christian love of Jews and Orthodox Jews. I think Tevi Troy was one of was was uh, somebody in his. Uh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Right. No, so, but, 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 but let me just go get. get, get, get yeah, go ahead. Mind. Get to your point. I didn't similarly is surrounded by Jews. His chief of staff is a Jew. The Secretary of State is a Jew. The national—I mean, there are Jews all over the place in the, in the administration. There's almost a minion at the cabinet at this point, right? Surrounded by Jews, right? The first lady's husband—I mean, the, uh, the vice president's husband—is yes. uh, is a Jew, Doug Emhoff. So now, so the question here really is: Yeah, Biden was very supportive of Israel during Gaza. He. I don't think he alone, but he certainly, I don't think, did enough to challenge the extreme left of his party and the anti-Semitic adjacent remarks some of them have made and continue to make. Um, and some of them are really just flagrant anti-Semitism. Uh, and then uh, that's one issue. And then the issue is what's he going to do with Iran? But long term, here's the question. It should be bothering everybody right now. Blinken is right now in the Middle East. Right. He went to visit Israel. He went back with Abbas and all this stuff. So it's clear from everything they've said and everything they're doing is that they want to enhance the prestige and power of Mahmoud Abbas and his potential successor. 
in, co- in contrast to Hamas, because one, what clearly happened during the Gaza conflict is that Hamas is now the primary representative of the Palestinian people, like it or not. There are pro-Hamas rallies all over the West Bank. They are chanting anti-Abbas slogans on Al-Aqsa. The, uh, the, 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 the Abbas-appointed Mufti over the Temple Mount was physically ejected by other Palestinians. And, 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 we, and we know that Hamas, I don't know if all the rockets came from Iranian money, but I think most of them did, right? Well, it, it's it probably, probably, yes. Probably it's Iranian. It may be Iranian. The whole event may have been Iranian triggered. But again, when Hamas went to war to accomplish something, and they accomplished it, Hamas went to war to posture themselves as the ultimate defenders of Jerusalem. Palestinians were being beaten on Al-Aqsa, they claimed, and Al-Aqsa was at risk. Sheikh Jarrah was at risk. And they attacked Israel, attacked Jerusalem in order to posture themselves as the primary defenders of Jerusalem. So what the Americans are trying to do now is to, you know, to, to restore Abbas's prestige, which is difficult, the aftermath of him canceling the elections and 17-year rule that is characterized by corruption and everything else. So, uh, so they're trying to build up. So what are they saying now? All the aid that goes to Gaza is going to go through Abbas, right? And it won't go through Hamas anymore. We have to build up their prestige. We're going to reopen the consulate in East Jerusalem, they say, in order to again, elevate the prestige of Abbas and have direct contact and open a PLO office in, in, in Washington again. All this stuff, which has legal problems, they have legal challenges to do that, but that's what they want to do. And, and so, the, so the question is long-term. In a situation where fewer and fewer Israelis believe that a two-state solution is, is viable, how do you navigate this enormous challenge right now if you want to fix the status quo or change the status quo without pushing and advocating for a two-state solution, which BB did in fact embrace, not unequivocally, but he did embrace at one point in his political career. He did embrace a two-state solution. Hasn't spoken about it in some time. The entire political spectrum in Israel has certainly shifted more to the right since the intifada of the uh, of, of, of those early years of this of this of this of this, of this a century, but uh, the the reality is that uh, they are going to continue to advocate for a two state solution, as impractical or as unrealistic as it may be, and that's a challenge for, for Biden. It's a challenge for any American administration, because that is the mantra of peace. The mantra of peace is a two state solution, and how does Israel navigate that challenge by keeping open the possibility? even if it won't be realized, but by keeping over the possibility of a two-state solution. What I mean by that is, you know, limiting the settlement building to this side of the line that everyone knows will be part of Israel anyway. Does it mean shutting down illegal settlements? Does it mean restricting uh, Jewish uh, Jewish uh, property buying in, in, in Jerusalem, in, in the Arab areas? That's a, that's a, that's a huge challenge and, and, question and- for any American administration. I, I think you know the, the 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 issue is not really giving them the land. The issue is giving them their own military, giving them control of the land as a real separate state. And I, I think if if you're the the average, you know, unaffiliated, you know, I would say guy from Des Moines, Iowa, you're looking at the paper and you're saying, well, I do like Jews, I do like democracy, but 
it doesn't sound like that's a real state, does it? When basically Israel doesn't allow you uh, to have certain military capabilities, they don't allow you to have certain forces, right? And and I no, think so, so, so. But again, listen, the cynics say Bibi has always facilitated aid to Gaza that goes through Qatar. You know, the, all the money that comes in every month in order to keep Hamas viable. This is what cynics say, because Bibi understands as long as the Palestinians are, are divided between the West Bank rule of Abbas and the Gaza rule of, of Hamas, then he has the, uh, an excuse on a silver platter by saying, well, who am I supposed to talk to anyway? Let them get their own house in order first. Those are cynics. I don't believe that's true, but that's what cynics will tell you. But, what I, but, but here's the question. And here's what defenders of Israel should be saying today. They should be saying a couple of things, but they, one of the things they need to say is, instead of screaming, Hamas are all terrorists, meet the terror, all this stuff, say simply, do you really think the Middle East will benefit by having a Hamas-ruled state? I mean, is that going to look like Switzerland or even Jordan, or it will look like Syria and Iraq? And, and that's, that's what we should be challenging. It's not, in other words, instead of debating how bad the status quo is, talk about the future that they envision. It's not a, a vision of a flourishing, you know, rights-respecting democracy in Gaza. It's a theocratic terror state is what it will be. And in fact, what's happened, if Israel is able to present this in a compelling way, this recent conflict doesn't add fuel to those who claim we need a two-state solution. It adds fuel to those who say, look what an independent Palestinian state will mean. If giving them territory in Gaza turned Gaza into a Hamas-ruled launching pad against Israel, what will surrendering the West Bank look like and today right. when Hamas is more popular than Fatah? Yeah, and, and, and he, doesn't everybody realize when they say free Palestine, they mean basically eliminate the Jews from, from, from Eretz Israel. It still means that, right? Whether it's unrealistic or not. That's what their charter says. Don't listen to what any Jew says about Hamas. Read yeah. what the charter says about Hamas. Um, read them in their own words. Yeah. Now, again, we've talked, I think many people have uh, talked about the sort of the desperate and uh, sorry state of the Hasbara. And, and you know, Bibi himself went on Face the Nation and and, and, and put it right on the line and said, I'm going to ask every single one of you, what would you, what would, you wouldn't do the same thing? Every no, single one. That, listen, I don't believe the Hasbara is bad. I do believe, however, that the cultural climate Demand, right, or demand, maybe demands a different type of Hasbara, like you were saying. Well, here's what I would say about that. It's a very, it's a usually challenging uh, environment we live in. In other words, Black Lives Matter has emboldened the pre-existing predilection of many to look at Israel through a simple prism of power and, and power. Right. And, and Israel's condemned because they have power. The, the Palestinians are elevated yeah. as virtue. That's right. We all know that. Now, but it, Black Lives Matter has, 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 has supercharged that inclination. Right, because, <laughs> because, it's, because it's basically changed the dynamic of the United States as well. Uh, the, same right. way, the same way the, the white elite or whatever you want to call them need to acknowledge that they are oppressors, I've, then any time anyone who's in power uh, and there is uh, a, 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 a disparate level between uh, of, of, of economic uh, abilities between one 
sect than another, that the one who's on top has to realize that they are oppressing, right? right. And if you add to that, you know, military strength, then you're right. Uh, the black. So, so, so the arena is challenging. Um, but I would say that if you look at the media in Europe, uh, Europe was much better this time than they were in 2014 during the last Gaza conflict. Much better. Uh, I mean, not just countries like Austria and Hungary and the Czech Republic, which actually flew the Israeli flag on government buildings during the conflict. But it, 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 Europe is, it, Merkel was good. The Brits were good. Uh, France less so. But Europe was pretty good, much better than 2014. And there's two reasons for that. Reason number one is they have confronted what Israel confronts. They have confronted Islamic terrorism uh, firsthand, right, face to face. So they have they're they're more sympathetic to the challenges that Israel has. Number two, one of the reasons Israel was so vilified in Europe is that the lesson Europeans drew from World War II was the problem is the nation state. The, The problem is unrestrained nationalism. And therefore we need to subsume those nationalist uh, uh, tendencies into supranational organizations like NATO, the European Union, the European, all these things. In other words, we need to we need to dilute nationalism. They saw Israel as a throwback to an idea that they had rejected, and not only rejected but seen as a source of conflict, meaning an ethnic-based national state. Right, that was part of it. The fact is, Europe has moved away from that. With the the failure, there's a greater appreciation for a distinctive national identity that is necessary to that sense of of a collectivity and belonging, and 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 to do be able to do things to benefit your own citizens and everything else. So you know, so whatever it is, Europe was better this time. Europe was better. We need to acknowledge that. America was much better this time, and we need to acknowledge that. What was worse this time, much worse this time was for the, I can't say for the first time, but on an unprecedented level, the targeting of individual Jews and Jewish communities by Arab immigrants to to, to North America, and sometimes by their extreme leftist uh, allies. The physical violence perpetrated in LA, on the Diamond District, in Brooklyn, in Manhattan, in Montreal, in Toronto, that was something I'm going to throw in. I'm going to throw in the vandalism of the Shul and Skokie, the, the, right, the, right, the Iranian, Skokie. The, which was a, a block or two, two blocks away from where I used to live. The Iranian, the Iran Hebrew congregation. Right. <laughs> um, it, it, you have to think that it wasn't just that it was a, a, a convenient Shul. It's the Iran Hebrew right. congregation. Right. right. So, again, I, I don't I don't like to use the word unprecedented, but it's certainly radically worse than we've ever seen before. Can we also say parenthetically, before you get on to, I know what you wanted to speak about, that Biden's statement was good on that too. Yes, absolutely. But, but in other words, there were many uh, people who spoke in the House of Representatives who said, we uh, we condemn anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. Right. Biden- so some of the statements from House members was terrible. Also, you had idiotic op-ed writers in the New York Times like Michelle Goldberg talking about how What's bad about this is that it hurts, I don't know what, some liberal cause. In other words, it's not bad in and of itself. It's bad because it emboldens the right wing or it's used by the right wing. No, it's bad in and of itself. And here's the crazy irony. AOC and Rashida Tlaib had just yelled at Biden 
that he should be more pro-China because being anti-China triggers anti-Asian hate crimes in America. Yet, when criticizing Israel has triggered scores of anti-Semitic violent assaults, they are participants in that provocation and incitement. In other words, they understand that what a right, president right. And, and we and, and, and Rabbi Pupko, we all know that the spike in anti-Asian uh, incidents was minuscule. It was nothing. Absolutely. It was a complete farce. And, right. and, and, and listen, we all know, again, socialism or communism doesn't give a damn about human life eventually. Right. right. America was the worst thing in the world for America to be in Vietnam. I, it was a terrible war, but once we gave up, the slaughter, uh, the Indo-Chinese was... Two million Cambodians lost their lives. That's of- right. When we left, and you didn't hear the left say this was the most terrible thing in the world. Again, it's... Listen, it, I remember when you came back from Vietnam after having <laughs> the 82nd. I, I, I thought we were together. I thought we were I both in Charlie like Company. Own service. You know, I was... I, was, I wanted yeah. to thank you for your service. Yes, yes. Well, you know what? I, I did the... I think the <laughs> best... I think the best time we had was when we went on that boat ride to find <laughs> Colonel Kurtz. Do you remember that? <laughs> yes, I, absolutely. Yes. Yes, yes. You know, in that, that young guy, was it Martin Sheen? The director's cut. The director's cut. Was the, Martin Sheen was with us. Larry Fish. Burn was Larry Fishburne was there without his shirt on. Anyway, but it, to get back to the serious point here, <laughs> the uh, the um, yes, and then there was that whole incident. I mean, let's not talk about it. Anyway, look, t- listen. When I saw, listen to see Brando, you know, with, talk about Larry. With by that the way, issue. I don't know if you know this. A friend of mine visited Vietnam and went to the American War Crimes Museum in Saigon. Yeah, and I apparently mean, there's a section about us there. I mean, uh, I just want to—I just want to say. I mean, there is a, a whole. Anyway, <laughs> I, listen. I am waiting for the paternity suits uh, <laughs> to, to start happening. You know what? You know, there, I'm sure there's some very nice redheaded uh, Vietnamese children. I don't want to get into that. that there. Anyway, cast aspersions <laughs> on your. Uh, <laughs> okay, now, but let me get back. To what's search. a G? What, what's a GI to do? Anyway. <laughs> the, yeah. The, yeah, but anyway, but, but my, my point is, is that the Vietnam War was really uh, a terrible situation, as we know. And again, the left pushed us out, and maybe properly so, uh, peace with honor, as, right. as, as Dick Nixon said. But the point is, is that the left really doesn't care about lives. No, we know. Uh, that. Uh, right? and, so and here's it, the thing. So I just want to say a couple of things. So you had the violence and all those places we mentioned and more. Uh, vandalism, actual yeah. physical assaults. I mean, I talked to the rabbi, the kid who got his head bashed in on 47th Street, and those are his words because he visited him in the hospital. I mean, there were serious physical assaults. And, and here's the thing we have to be very careful about this. And I don't know how to do it in the best way. But for instance, in France, when the Muslim, you know, whether it was the murder in Toulouse of the teacher and three kids, whether it was uh, uh, the, uh, you know, Elon Halimi and then Mir- Miriam, I mean, those terrible murders of Jews in France by Muslim radicals, uh, I mean, persistent. I mean, the attack on hypercusher, all those attacks in yeah, France. Yeah, the people were talking about, you know, this isn't French anti-Semitism. That was their nice way of saying this is a uh, unassimilated Muslim community that has successfully imported uh, the violence of the Middle East to the streets of France. And the question in, in America, we have to be able to say the same thing without sounding like Trump and his xenophobia about immigrants. But we should be able to say that this is not old-fashioned American anti-Semitism. This is an assault 
un-American values, this attack. And by saying that clearly, that this is an assault on American values, or in Canada, on, on Canadian values, we have, to, we, have, we, we're, we have to subtly send the message that we understand the address. This isn't a white supremacist in, 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 a, in a basement somewhere. This isn't a left-wing radical somewhere. We know where these attacks are coming from. They're coming from a group of people who, again, reflect the values of their countries of origin. Where assaulting a Jew, where killing a Jew is a praiseworthy act. We know that, and uh, whether it's whether it was France or Belgium or or, or 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 America, we know where this comes from. And to for Jewish organizations and even Biden to use the same language about these attacks is understandable. But there should be there's, there's another kind of language that needs to be used about these attacks. This is not typical. This is not just anti-Semitism. It isn't, and I don't know how to frame it without sounding like a xenophobe or anti-immigration or anti-Muslims in general, which we're not. We're talking about here the small percentage of the radicalized uh, Muslims, the small percentage that are radicalized. But we need to be able to use words that at least signal our understanding that this is not, you know, Charlestown, that this is not Pittsburgh, that this is not San Diego Shoal. It's different. This is different. This is an attack by people, you know, who are motivated by events in, in, in the Middle East. And that's a whole different story. This is not, you know, a, you know, this is not another, this is a, another brand of the violence against Jews. And, and we have to be able to say, it. but I want to get to, okay, go ahead. You talk. Right. Yeah, no, no, I, I like. No, I want to talk about, I want to talk about. I want to talk about. Yeah, but let me, let, let me set the table on that. I think okay. both of us, I think were disgusted by a online petition that you could still sign. All you have to do is click a link and add your name to the list of rabbinic students, rabbinic uh, scholars, and we, the leaders of the future, I read somehow. Uh, and again, I didn't read the manifesto. I was just checking names and hoping to God none of them were my students who were writing this. And these people signed on to say that they uh, do not equate themselves with the state of Israel, and they want it to be out there in the public record. Uh, and and I, I assume that part of you read it. Tell me what you saw there uh, in terms. For, for, let me just preface it before you get on your, your soapbox or whatever it is they call it in Canada. Um, the, the, the point is, is that, yes, uh, to make it, it's one thing to, to be upset in private. It's another thing when you actually put it out there and you want everybody in the world to know that you are distancing yourself and you are condemning. What was it that they wrote, uh, these... these, these... Uh, they, they condemned Israel uh, uh, for its, uh, its, its measures in Gaza. Uh, they condemned Israel um, in, in very strong terms, in very strong terms for, their, uh, for, for, for the uh, measures they took to bomb the military installations in, in Gaza. Now, here's the thing. To me, this is if, when I when I look back on this war, I'm certainly first and foremost going to remember, uh, you know, the attacks in, in Israel. But the second thing I'll remember is the betrayal, and this is treason. Uh, and I'll tell you why I, I use the word treason. Let's say you're dumb enough to believe that there's justice in the uh, in the cause of the Palestinians, and you know, in, in Hamas. Let's say you're dumb enough to think that Israel shouldn't respond. When it's attacked. Let's say you're dumb enough 
to believe that Israel hasn't been generous enough by offering statehood multiple occasions to the Palestinians. Let's say you embrace, in the language of the day, the narrative of the Palestinians. Where's your love and loyalty for the Jewish people? When they're under attack, you join. When they're under attack, you don't defend. When you're under attack, you don't at least remain silent. So to go ahead and issue this statement, which was so dispiriting to Israelis. I first read about it in Israeli newspapers. Can you imagine an Israeli sitting in a bunker in Ashkelon, right, looking at his phone at at Yidiot website and seeing 100 rabbinical students in America condemned the country now defending it? I mean, this is an act of of, of sheer betrayal of Jewish recklessness, of really a crime against all notions of solidarity and loyalty. And I would go even, I mean, I, I would also just make the point that this is the worst example of the obsequious inclination that God forbid you should deviate an iota from the agenda of your woke colleagues. The people who you see as your peer group and support group and allies and every battle, God forbid you should be able to say to them, you know, I agree with you about racism. I agree with you about transgender rights. I agree with you about all these things. But on Israel, you're wrong. And they don't have the guts to say it. And they don't, and they, I don't think they believe it anymore. I don't even know what they believe. But this inability to stand up, uh, you know, for, for your own people, for your own people, uh, during at a time of attack, at least not, at least remain silent if you feel they deserve criticism. At least not, at least wait till the attacks are over. It is really unconscionable, and it, and it really is dispiriting and demoralizing to have people who should know better. I don't know what they actually study in Reconstructionist rabbinical school. I don't know what they're doing there, but or or, or the or the seminary anymore, or HUC, or wherever it is these kids are. But uh, these are the children of the woke, and uh, the children of the woke, and these are that. This is their generation, and no matter what, you cannot deviate from the orthodoxy, the moral and political orthodoxy of the woke, and you have to criticize Israel, and they are not willing to stand up for their own. And that is a sign of a decrepit soul, a decrepit mentality. And and I think it also, Rabbi, of course, I agree with you, and I I indicated that before, but it also uh, portends a very difficult future in terms of creating bridges within Judaism to the left flank, because, you know, there was, uh, I'm going to quote here, a beautiful uh, drash that someone mentioned to me this week um, from Mayor Shapiro, uh, the Pusik that we read in the end of the Tokokal, that God is going to lift the terrible um, punishments and, and, and things that he's been meeting out and is going to bring us back. It says, brisi Yaakov. Now, the, the, the verse itself, as you know, as a great darshan, is strange because it, it actually chronologically goes the wrong way. It talks about um, Yaakov, Yaakov, Yitzhak, Yaakov, Yaakov, and, and it also goes in terms as, as if there's, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really reach the bottom of the barrel. So Rav Meir Shapiro said that the Bris Yaakov, of course, was always based on our identity as a Torah nation, uh, a nation of Balabatim and B'nai Torah together, like Yaakov uh, represented. But when that stopped, there was another 
aspect, and that was the Brisi Yitzchak, which was, yes, I'm not too religious, but I go to shul. I have an idea of avoda. Yitzchak is the, is the idea of, of gvura, of avoda. There's a certain part of me that I bifurcate off, and that's my prayer type. And I go to shul, and I, I make sure to go there. No matter what, whatever type of shul it is, there's a certain equality that we had that we were synagogue goers. And there was an idea of the synagogue council and the synagogues. That was Brisa Yitzchak. When that starts to fade, then you have another aspect, which is What's that? That's philanthropy. That's kindness. That's charity. That even the ones who were unaffiliated from synagogues and were very not connected to ritual, they could still be called on to, to help Jews, to, to reach into their pocketbooks and, and write big checks and, and help support orphans and other people uh, that needed help. But now... It, it really comes, and this is, I don't think Mayor Shapiro said this, but what I added to it is Vaharetz Eskar, which is the fact that when that's over, then there's at least the idea that we're unified for Eretz Yisrael. There's still the Aretz, even if, if we don't have uh, these institutions operating, but at least God sees us as united with Eretz Yisrael. I don't know if even I'm, that's gone. Listen, and I think that's really, in a way, what what is what what is what is withering, which is falling. Let, let me ask you this: Do you, you know? I, I'm sure that if we if we got a spokesperson for those hundred or so signatures, whoever they are, and we would say to them, they would probably say, "We're not anti-Israel." Do 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 you think that um, they, if there would be a different government in Israel, do you think that? There's a, a well, listen, way that we can reach them. We've talked about this before. There's no question that for these kids, and that's what they are, they're children. Uh, but these kids, I think, were, are, parts of, are, are, are partially influenced by was the fact that Trump was so pro-Israel and Trump is Satan. And therefore, the embrace of Israel by Trump, you know, leaves muddy handprints behind, you know. Um, so that, that, that's part of it, you know, that... Uh, I don't know. I mean, it's a, uh, they, they believe they are representing the best of Jewish values of tikkun olam and, and looking out for the oppressed and saving Israel from itself. Yeah, if you had a guy like Shimon Peres, Prime Minister, now it might be, it might be less. So, do, do, do you, why don't you prognosticate on that front? And we can end off with this. Do you see, you know, hopefully- the I don't people- know. I, I don't know. I mean, studies do show that Kids who are, say things when they're 20 don't agree, agree with it 10 years later. So maybe there's some hope that people grow up. I don't know. What about uh, in Israel itself in terms of who's going to lead the government, you think? Listen, I, I'd love to see a better political you know, uh, uh, system in Israel, which can uh, you know, trigger some stability there. Instead of having fringe parties you know, determine its future, obviously it would be better if Israel had a unified or, or a stronger uh, government right now. They weren't in disarray. Um, are, are you afraid to mention any name of someone you think could be perhaps a, at least a better interim prime minister to put this all together than, than you know, I guess the math doesn't work out. It's almost irrelevant now to mention names. I mean, the math is terrible. And Bennett could be a five prime minister, I guess. I don't know. Time will tell. But, uh, you know, it could be Bibi's time is over. I don't know. I, you know, he does some great things, does some great things. Obviously, you know, no one's perfect. But he does some great things. I mean, what he did for the economy, what he did with the Abraham Accords, what he's done for for so many things in Israel represents Israel well. But you know, but but, but, but isn't it possible that um, 
you know, and again, I, I don't want to harp on it. And I, I, I think it's, it's probably, um, you know, not it's unjust in certain ways. But the same way Trump was the great Satan, Netanyahu, despite his relationship to Biden that we mentioned, maybe a change would allow the sympathies to Israel. I, to, I, 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 you know, I, I have to tell you, in two, when, when Israel withdrew from Gaza about 16 years ago, um, I remember everyone was saying, oh, this is great for Israel's PR. You know, this is great that we withdrew, we withdrew. Yeah, we got, we got, we got a few months of good press. But uh, it, so I'm not sure how much objective reality impacts how people want to think of it, Jews and how they want to think about Israel. You know, I, I just want to end on one thought. You know, one area of Jewish law over the last 200 years has changed. If you look at all the rabbinic responsa until the late 19th century on giving a machal Shabbos and aliyah, for instance, uh, was clearly against it. You know, a public Sabbath violator could never uh, get an aliyah in shul. And all that changed. As you know, all the, all the responses said, it's different today. They're teaching tradition and everything else. I think what people misunderstand about that conversation, it's not that we now are more forgiving to the violator. We're not. What I mean by that, let me tell you, what, explain what I mean by that, is that we understood that until the 19th century, in most places, being a Sabbath violator meant you were a traitor to the Jewish people. You were breaking Jewish norms. It wasn't about the halacha of being a Mahal Shabbos. It was about your public disavowal of belonging to the Jewish people. That's what Hillel Shabbos meant to the 19th century. It stopped meaning that because of the widespread lack of observance. Being a public Sabbath violator in 2021 is not a public disavowal of belonging to the Jewish people. It's not. It doesn't mean that anymore. But it did mean it. So when the rabbis banned Machal Shabbos, it wasn't because they were breaking Torah. It's because they were turning their back on Klai Yisrael. That's what Machal Shabbos used to mean. Sadly, it doesn't mean that anymore. But that's what it meant. And when these hundred write this letter about Israel, this deserves banishment. This is a turning your back on Klai Yisrael. And as you beautifully put it in that wonderful part that you improved on radically. I mean, you know, Mayor Shapiro could have used you. you know, <laughs> yeah. in a, in a regular and maybe, maybe I could have gotten him to get off the Dafyomi podium for a while, too. Because I mean, you, I, I mean the, the, the Shiva LeBlue had seven floors instead of five. Yeah, yes, yes, as you going. Uh, the, um, but uh, is that's the point? Is that is a Torah? Is it davening? Is it chesed? Is it the land? These people have turned their back on all of it. And this is treason. This is absolute treason. And I know that their colleagues, at least in the conservative movement, who are now 60 and 70, are disgusted with this and embarrassed by this. But that generation of conservative rabbi is on the way out. And what this means for Jewish unity in America in the face of this enormous cultural divide is not positive. Yes, and it's a it's a it's a uh, somber note to end on, despite uh, the levity, of course, that 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 exists between us. Uh, so let us at least hope, a Rabbi, uh, that the the ceasefire holds, and let us hope that um, again that perhaps Iran uh, will you know the mistakes that Iran has made in the past uh, will once again uh, rear its head. You know, there's one thing I, I, I will say. Um, and, and, and part of it, I, I think, is, is that 
the secularists in Iran still aren't running the show. And I think because of the uh, the mullahs and the ayatollahs, I think that they are going to still end up showing their hand in terms of what, what they're really about. Uh, you know, I, I, I noticed recently, I want to recommend this to you because I think both of us lived through that. Um, there's a, uh, you, you can get it for free. It's a screaming, uh, it's a streaming uh, film. Uh, it's called um, uh, uh, Here Comes Mike Wallace, or Mike Wallace is here. And of course, Mike Wallace, a nice Jewish boy out of Boston. And what is the most chilling part of uh, the, the, the documentary, which is really revealing about who Mike Wallace was, was his interview with the Ayatollah. And basically, he got in to speak to the Ayatollah. And the, at that interview, the Ayatollah ordered the assassination of Sadat. You know, because Sadat had spoken up against uh, what the Iranians were doing. Against, he says, this is not Islam. This terror is not what Islam means. And the Ayatollah said in that interview that uh, Sadat is a traitor. Within a week or so, Sadat was dead. What I'm trying to say is, I think that we're not dealing with such crafty people. The, 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 there is the extremism of their belief and their sense of, uh, of things is, I think, going to cause them to stumble. And I think people, despite how woke they are, will not be able to, val- to, 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 to deal with that. And that's what I'm hoping for. Potentially, yeah. All right. Anyway, All right. catch you next time. All right. Thank you so much. Be well. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. Thirty years. <laughs> thirty years? Well, you know, you hear much more than thirty years. Okay, one more time.